condition of the flight path. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. U.S. Treasuries and emerging markets are telling you one thing, that things are not okay out there. And the U.S. stock market is saying something quite different. It's saying we're fine and things are getting better. So we'll take a look at that this morning. The big, complex and slightly boring state of macroeconomics. And we'll also be looking at the headlines. For instance, the feds in the U.S. investigate Herbalife. China and Dr. Copper again whack global markets. And Stanley Fisher gets ready to set up shop at the Fed. His prepared remarks make clear that he is on the same page with Janet Yellen when it comes to Fed policy. And that is Bloomberg's Peter Cook. Mr. Fisher says the Fed needs to remain expansionary. And we'll have more on that in a moment as Mr. Fisher faces testimony before the Congress uh, Thursday. So that'll be tomorrow morning, our time. Also in the news, New Zealand becomes the first major nation to raise interest rates. The central bank moved rates up 25 basis points to 2.75%. In our special segments on the program this morning, we'll take a look at the CPPCC and the NPC as they get set to close. Sokjen's Wei Yao will join us for that. We'll also be speaking to Matul Kataka at Credit Agricol CIB on markets and also about the NPC. And then David Faulkner at Colliers International will be joining us for a look at Hong Kong property. Let's take a look at Asian markets first. The Nikkei has opened 35 points higher. That's up a quarter of a percent. Markets are higher in both Australia and Seoul, uh, up a third of a percent for the X, ASX 200 in uh, Australia. And in Seoul, the Kospi has moved up uh, almost one half of a percent. The dollar is trading at 102.81 yen, the euro at 1.3902. So that is the yen a little weaker against the dollar. And that is the euro a little stronger against the uh, greenback as well. Well, and the pound now, 12 Hong Kong dollars, 90 cents. So the guest coming in just a moment, but first Wall Street and some of these news stories in a little bit more detail. On Wall Street, stocks did erase losses and did finish slightly higher for the day. Herbalife, though, was down 7.4%. The direct marketer said that the Federal Trade Commission in the United States has started a civil probe into its practices. The S&P 500 was up 0.1% at 1868. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 11 points to 16,340. European markets were down for a fourth day and copper dipped to a four-year low before rebounding. And as we look at the European markets, we see most of the losses of about 1% for the major indices. Investor George Soros says Europe is facing 25 years of stagnation if it doesn't integrate more smoothly. What is facing Europe, uh, unless there is a more radical change, is a long period of stagnation. Uh, uh, And nations can survive that way. Uh, Japan is just trying to break out of 25 years of stagnation uh, uh, that Europe is just entering. But the European Union is not a nation. It's an incomplete association of nations. And it may not survive uh, 25 years of stagnation. 
He says creditors are too dominant now compared to the debtors in Europe. The financial crisis as such is over. But now you're facing a political crisis because the uh, euro crisis has transformed what was meant to be a voluntary association of equal sovereign states that sacrifice part of their sovereignty for the common good uh, into uh, something radically different. It's now a relationship between creditors and debtors where the debtors have difficulty in paying and servicing their debt and that puts the creditors in charge and that divides the, uh, the Eurozone into uh, two classes, the creditors debtors and the creditors uh, are in charge and, and the, unfortunately the, the uh, policy that Germany in particular is imposing on Europe is counterproductive. So quite strong comments that uh, the policies by Germany are counterproductive. He did go on to say, though, in that interview that Germany had recently softened its position, in particular Angela Merkel, who was talking tough to a domestic audience, uh, but letting uh, the European Central Bank do what it wanted to do. The FTSE 100 down 64 points at 66.20. The DAX off 119 at 9,188. That's the loss of almost 1,000 points for the DAX since the crisis in Ukraine erupted. Well, in another key story, former Bank of Israel Governor Stanley Fisher says the Fed needs to remain expansionary in its policies. We get more now from Peter Cook on Mr. Fisher's appearance before Congress tonight. His prepared remarks make clear that he is on the same page with Janet Yellen when it comes to Fed policy. He says while the Fed has made significant progress in recent years and praises the Fed's unprecedented moves as courageous and effective, normalcy has not been restored in his words. And with unemployment at 6.7 percent, the Fed's job is still not done. He will say at present uh, the Federal Reserve uh, achievement of both maximum and em employment and price stability requires the continuation of an expansionary monetary policy, even though the degree of expansion is being gradually and cautiously cut back as the Fed reduces its monthly purchases of longer-term Treasury securities and agency mortgage-backed securities. Peter Cook says it should be an easy confirmation for Mr. Fisher. Now, his confirmation really is not in doubt in the Senate. Republicans and Democrats alike have praised his record as Israel's central bank governor, and he's a legend in economic circles, having taught Ben Bernanke, Larry Summers, and even Mario Draghi. But some Democrats on the panel, including Elizabeth Warren, have questioned his experience as a bank regulator and his past ties to Wall Street. Uh, and he tries to address that in his testimony, saying that the Fed must remain ever vigilant in supervision and regulating financial institutions and markets. And he adds in his statement, the Great Recession has driven home the lesson that the Fed has not only uh, has not only to fulfill its dual mandate, but also to contribute its part to the maintenance of the stability of the financial system. Bloomberg's Peter Cook, and we say good morning to Matul Koteka, who's head of global markets research for Asia and head of foreign exchange strategy at Credit Agricole CIB. Matul, good morning. Good morning. Thanks very much for coming on the program again. Uh, so lots in the news as affecting markets, China, Ukraine, perhaps slowing growth uh, all around. Uh, what are you focused on the most? Well, I think, as you say, it's uh, the same themes now on a daily basis that seem to be uh, inciting market angst. And uh, those themes are slowing growth in China. And uh, in the wake of the uh, poor export numbers that we had last weekend, 
and uh, also, of course, the situation in the Ukraine, which is not improving uh, by any means, and the tensions seem to be intensifying. So I think markets remain very nervous. And on top of this, of course, uh, we still continue to see uh, weak U.S. data that's been weather-impacted, and that's raising, uh, to some extent, concern about uh, whether the U.S. will recover as expected. Uh, and, of course, uh, the fact that U.S. equities seem to be topping out at the moment. There's no real impetus from earnings or economic data, and we're seeing a real, uh, I, I guess, a, a lack of momentum in terms of uh, equity markets in the U.S. In the past, some people referred to copper as Dr. Copper for its ability to uh, actually uh, prescribe uh, what's happening uh, with the patient, uh, and the patient being the global economy. Uh, mm. Some weird things have been happening with copper, and a lot of people citing here of late uh, the fact that many loan deals in China have, have, have used copper as collateral. Um, is that something, is the movement of copper telling us that there could be more dire times ahead? I think it's certainly signaling uh, greater concern. And as you said, it has been used as collateral uh, for loans in the past. And clearly the default, uh, the first default that we saw recently in China, that has really raised concerns. And I think that's uh, another factor that's obviously dampened copper demand. And it's also, of course, just slower growth. I think concerns that Chinese economy is slowing is weighing on copper. But as you say, I think that the drop in copper is extreme even compared to that. And a lot of that as well is related to perhaps copper's use as a, as a collateral for, for this loan growth. And I think on that basis, uh, copper is like to linger around these four-year lows uh, for probably for some time to come until such worries ease. I guess copper also is part of the old uh, kind of society, the old build-out and build-up buildings and that sort of thing. Uh, we do have a more modern economy now, but still uh, something to keep its eye on. As you look at uh, China, do you also side with so many an other analysts who come on this program saying, forget about the state-owned enterprises, that's the old economy. Look at the Internet, look at some of these new consumer names. Well, that's right. I mean, I think clearly there is a growth in other areas of the economy that uh, is, is looking pretty positive. But at the same time, um, the state-owned economy, state-owned sectors are huge. And even when we look at the banks in China, for instance, it's, it's a really huge part of the economy. So the reality is that there has to be and, and probably will be some reform on the state-owned sector going forward before we can really see a, a more sustainable underlying pace of growth and, and really helping the rest of the economy. Because the problem is, you know, we can talk about by the internet and other sectors of the economy that are, that are thriving, that are moving ahead. But the reality is that they won't, they'll be constrained until you see uh, ineffective or inefficient areas of the economy uh, you know, being rationalized and reformed going forward. The renminbi at 6.134 against the U.S. dollar. What's happening at the moment with the renminbi? Well, it, it's really a case where China continues to put pressure on the currency. Uh, obviously, the, the fixing has been weaker. In other words, they want to engineer some weakness of the currency. But what's more important as well is volatility. They want to provoke more two-way risk. Uh, as we know, in, in the early part of this year, there was a lot of inflow into China. And I think this spooked Chinese officials. They don't want to see such a strong inflow of capital and uh, a, a currency that's perceived to be a one-way bet. So I think given that we've also had some weaker numbers in terms of of economic growth, uh, it's not surprising that they're engineering some currency weakness. Now we're around this sort of, as you say, 615 levels. I don't think we're going to see much more weakness from here, that being said. So I always have thought of you in the past as kind of an expert on currencies, but I see now you're, you're also, and have been for a while, uh, head of research. Um, so I can ask you about overall ideas, but first on currencies, uh, which currencies do you like at the moment? Well, 
I think in the short term, we have to look at safe haven currencies, and that's uh, the reality is in the very short term, the yen and the Swiss franc will probably do reasonably well in terms of major currencies. The euro is also holding up very well, and I think uh, this currency is showing no real sign of decline. In terms of Asia, you know, the, the, um, there's been some interesting and, and firm moves in some Asian currencies, such as Indian rupee, Indonesian rupiah, have been outperforming. But I'm a bit more cautious on Asian currencies at the moment. I think we're seeing uh, some concerns and risk aversion, I think, will likely weigh on some of the Asian currencies. And so what is your best investment idea now? Well, I, I really do think it's it's probably stay in again very short term. You have to be long uh, bonds, and I think probably a little bit more neutral on equity markets. I think further out, we're still very bearish on the bond market and bullish, more bullish on equity. So I think this is providing better levels to position for more equity upside in the coming months and more bond downside. So I think on an asset allocation basis, uh, you know, being short bonds and, and long equities for the medium term is a good way to go. All right, Matul, thank you very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. That's Matul Kataka, head of global markets research for Asia and the head of uh, foreign exchange strategy over at Credit Agricole CIB. We're joined now by Wei Yao, China economist at Societe Generale. We like the French today. What can I say? Uh, Wei, good morning. Good morning. Yeah. So um, red lights um, kind of flashing in a lot of areas. Uh, financial risks seem to be on the rise in China and have been over the past uh, week or 10 days as these two big legislative meetings uh, are underway. Um, everybody waiting to see what happens in the news conference, I guess, uh, with the premier and where we are on reforms. Are you happy with the reforms and will they be implemented? Well, uh, so far the progress actually has been good. Um, since November, there have been many measures put into place one, uh, about one-child policies, state-owned enterprises. Some actually are quite surprising, you know, how, how fast they are willing to do certain things. Um, but I think one, one issue is really that at the same time, Premier Lee said um, the, tar- the growth target is the same. So, so I, I think at the at the press conference today, he will probably have to um, explain a bit more. You know, whether where is the government's maximum tolerance for further slowdown? I think which is very necessary that if they want to stick to reform more than before. In a sense, have the reforms been overshadowed by some of the news flow of late? The default on uh, that Ch- uh, Shanghai Chaori Solar, and also on the very weak trade data, particularly on the exports. Uh, actually, I, I, the way I see these defaults, I think they are part of the reform because if if the central government is committed to financial market liberalization, then what do you mean by a liberalized financial market with no defaults? Yeah. This has to go together. It's part of the plan. It is, a, it is absolutely necessary for China to build a healthy financial market. So I, I think it's overall long-term a good thing. Sure, short, short-term there's a question, would it lead to a systemic financial crisis? But Chinese government does have a lot of control over the system right now, and they can use the control to avoid the worst, but still kind of start to recognize the problem and solve them. Uh, the problem that a lot of people worry about is is once the um, you know once the door is opened, uh, when you get the stampede, it's kind of hard to get out of the way. That's what happened with Lehman, and I know a lot of people are saying, well, even with uh, property, you know, they can just. Uh, uh, relax the conditions uh, and and allow, let's say, uh, a lower uh, down payment. That'll bring buyers back in. But you know, once you get a lot of momentum, it's scary. Yeah, true, true. It is. So you don't uh, see you don't see that momentum coming. Well, I, yeah, 
that that is certainly a risk. I'm just saying, you know, given the control the government has and the tools and means and the various pockets of money they have, they have a chance to avoid that. Because you've got a lot of bears out there right now. I, I kind of headlined this morning that, you know, U.S. Treasuries and emerging markets are kind of sending troubling signals that things are not so great out there and that the stock market in the West is, is you know, at record highs. Uh, but there are a lot of bears on China. And then there are yeah. people like you who say, look, you know, this is well within their control. They are doing this on purpose. Well, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't say they're well within the control. I'm just saying, you know, um, the choice for the policymakers is for first defaults are inevitable, right? So, so the choice is they they allow this to happen now or they allow, allow this to happen later. You look at China. This is a, actually a very small case. They saved it once. There is no problem for them to save it again, right? Then why would they let it happen? So it is the choice of the policymaker. But it also shows they understand in the long run they will lose control if they push the economy to more liberal status. So. As I think, you know, it's a it's a it's a right choice to do the in out when they still have control. Um, now they have a chance. In the future, they don't have a chance. It okay. will definitely become a crisis. I've got another guest uh, waiting in the wings, and we'll get to David Faulkner in just a moment. Uh, but just your overall reading: Are we looking at a dramatic slowing of growth? You you highlighted that seven point five percent was still the target. Were you hoping or thinking they would lower it? I don't think they will lower it, but they will definitely tolerate a bit more. You know, Minister yeah. of Finance already said that it can be lower, and, and, and it will be lower. There is no chance they can get to 7.5% given the current situation. So back to the question then, do you worry at all about a dramatic slowing and that uh, um, this is just inevitable? I would say this year the chance of that is 20%. It's not that big, but not significant either. Okay. All right. It's always fun to talk to you. I always enjoy it. Thank you very much, uh, Wei. Thank you. Wei Yao, China economist at Societe Generale. Well, the red lights that I spoke about earlier, they're certainly flashing for Hong Kong's property market. The government's stamp duty measures here have kind of shut down demand. And China's economy is slowing. We've just been talking about that. Supply of flats is increasing here. And the U.S. Federal Reserve is cutting back on stimulus. And a rise in interest rates may be coming next year. Prices are only down about 4 to 5 percent here. But transactions have really fallen off the table down to a two-decade low. We say good morning to David Faulkner, Executive Director at Colliers International, Hong Kong. David, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for waiting patiently. Uh, you are taking a slightly negative view of property out over the next year, are you not? Uh, yes, we are. Um, as you said, there aren't too many buyers in the market. Uh, we don't have a lot of motivated sellers at the moment, hence transaction volumes have fallen. But that won't continue uh, forever. And I think to get the market moving, it's going to be the uh, sell side that will start reducing prices rather than the buy side coming up. So that's why we think we'll see uh, further drops in value uh, this year to basically just get the market going. It, it does lead us to wonder why there isn't much selling pressure. I mean, all these things we can see now, we could see over the past six months. You just wonder why aren't people motivated to sell? Well, I think there's two reasons. Firstly, people here are not under financial pressure. Um, very few homeowners are really highly leveraged, and those that are are taking the view that interest rates are still low. 
Um, they probably stayed lower than we had originally expected. Now we're talking about them going up next year. A year ago, we were talking about them going up this year. So I think people sit, are sitting tight there. But the general um, thing you hear from property owners is, OK, so I sell my property, and then what do I do with the money? Because exactly. if you look at other assets, you're not getting any better returns. So they'll say, well, let's just sit tight. This is better than, than the alternatives. Yes. Um, and, you know, with people having so much down in it, you know, they're not really pressured so much. Uh, um, what was I going to ask you about? I was going to ask you about um, keys in the market, you know, what you're looking for uh, as a sort of catalyst. Well, I suppose uh, the Hong Kong property market, unfortunately, is so driven by sentiment. So you need a general air of either negativity or positivity to move the market. Um, we certainly have owners now that are thinking, well, we're not going to get any more out of this market. Maybe we better try and sell. And they are starting to reduce their prices a bit. Obviously, this started with the developers who wanted to clear their excess inventory uh, by offering all sorts of what they call sweeteners, but they're effectively price uh, reductions on new flats. Um, and we haven't really seen much of that in the second-hand market, but I think those that are sitting on property and thinking, well, I don't really need to keep it any longer, are now starting to look at cutting prices to get deals away. So we're just at the beginning of that process at the moment, but we have seen people bringing prices down in specific cases you know, just to get a deal away. A correction is one thing, but if we see a major turn and sharp downward pressure, it brings uh, into the discussion the same thing I was asking Wei Yao about, about momentum. Even if the government were to relax uh, its uh, stamp duties, its various stamp duties, uh, is it possible that wouldn't be enough to uh, stanch downward pressure if it was sharp? Well, historically, once everybody has turned negative on the market, the market has started to move uh, downwards and it quite often goes further than it should do. We certainly saw that in 98, 99. Um, so it's quite likely if prices do come down significantly, people will start jumping ship uh, and buyers will be more aggressive in, in asking for discounts. So you could see a bigger drop than any of us would really want. That, that unfortunately, is the way the market goes. One interesting thing coming up will be this um, Wheelock sale of, of, of one of the towers in, in Quintong because we saw a price last year of $4.5 billion, which was pretty heady. And um, now you have a similar tower, I guess. Can you project what sort of bids they might likely get for that? And uh, will we see a big change, a big drop? Um, I don't think we will for a property like that because if the bids don't meet expectations, then Wheelock just won't sell the tower. So I would expect bids to be coming in, um, not necessarily at the same number as last time, but they will be within striking distance of it, I would think. And for people who are thinking now about possibly dipping their toes in the water, um, are there areas that you like, given the circumstances, that you might point them toward? either areas, uh, you know, in the strata of the market or actually physical areas as well? Well, I think if you're buying in the market, you want to be buying at the lower end because that uh, saves you on stamp duty um, as well as being a more liquid market because it tends to be the buyers or the owners of the smaller units that are more willing to um, do deals at the moment. Um, in terms of areas to buy, I think the most popular ones are the ones we've talked about before, which have been the ones on the island, 
at sort of at the fringes, the sort of Kennedy Down, Sherman Wan area is still very popular, and there's a good rental market if you're if you're buying for investment, and there's also um, the other end of the island, sort of North Point, that end of it. If you cross the water, then I think you've got to be reasonably close to a public transport interchange, preferably MTR, if not um, a very good bus route. And I think if you're buying in those areas. Um, you'll be pretty safe. For those people who are thinking about uh, prices out over the next year or two, how much do you factor in the macro picture in China into this thinking? Well, I suppose the macro picture on China comes in on two levels. You have the Chinese buyers, uh, and I think they tend to be buying at the top end of the market, although a lot of them now are not buying in Hong Kong. They've moved on to London and San Francisco and all sorts of other places. And then you have the impact for those who are actually doing business in China. And obviously that has affected uh, the growth in jobs here. It's affected the financial sector and other people providing services to China. If you're not getting pay increases, you're not getting big bonuses because China slows down, that obviously affects the affordability for housing. Because it brings to mind the idea that you, you know, normally you don't mind rising interest rates a little bit if it indicates the economy is doing well. But for us, you know, our interest rates are set in the United States. So if we hit a cycle where China is slowing fast and there are some real troubles there beneath the surface prompted by too much debt at a time when the U.S. is going pretty well and raising interest rates, that could be a bad uh, uh, toxic mix for us. Yes, absolutely. Just as in the past, we've had situations Just the where opposite. our market has been overheating and <laughs> they've yeah. been slowing down. That's what I say. I mean, we had such a great time two or three years ago when that was the case. But whoa, what happens if just the reverse comes up? Well, I think you have to look back sort of 10, 15 years and you can see what happened there. Uh, we had a pretty tough time after the Asia financial crisis. Um, and at that time, we were, we were trying to sync with U, U, U.S. policy, which didn't really help us out. So you could certainly have a repeat of that. I wouldn't say you're going to have anything as bad as we've had before, but certainly that could happen, uh, and it could be quite negative. That might be something like 30%, 40% down, do you think? There's a possibility. I wouldn't say it's likely, but there's a possibility. What else do you worry about? I mean, you look like a pretty calm individual, and you certainly sound that way. What worries you? What worries me, basically, is the lack of the long-term planning here. I look at my crystal ball and it's still very cloudy in terms of where the supply is going to come on, when it's going to come on, what sort of supply is going to come on. And it also worries me that there's this very heavy focus on residential at the moment and we seem to have forgotten about business space hotels and some of these other things you need okay. to make Hong Kong a, a, an international city. That's a discussion for us on another day. Now the sexy part, uh, what gets you really excited? What gets me excited is the fact that we still have a very vibrant economy here and at the end of the day, whatever you say about China, you've still got a huge domestic market on your doorstep. Okay. Well, thank you very much, David. Uh, David Faulkner, Executive Director at Collier's International Hong Kong, joining us here on Money for Nothing. Well, the markets are softly mixed this morning, flat in Seoul, slightly higher in Australia, and the Nikkei is up 10 points only at 14,841. Gold had a big jump overnight, now $1,365.60 an ounce, 
And looking uh, at oil prices, 108.23. How about the weather for today in Hong Kong? Mainly cloudy, some fog expected, and some light rain uh, as well. Temperatures lingering around 20 degrees. Next couple of days, cool temperatures expected in the morning. This is Money for Nothing at 8.30. Thanks for joining us. 8.31, the news with Samantha Butler. China has published images of what it suggests may be three pieces of wreckage from a Malaysian airliner that vanished on Saturday on its way to Beijing. Search teams have been scouring a vast area of ocean around the Malay Peninsula, where the plane disappeared with 239 people on board. The BBC's Sarah Campbell reports. These pictures were taken on March the 9th at 11 o'clock local time. So that's the day after the plane went missing. And there are effectively three pictures that it shows. It's clearly an object floating in the sea. The first one measuring around about 13 metres by 18 metres. The second satellite image uh, is an object measuring 14 metres by 19 metres. The third satellite image, a little bit bigger object, 24 metres by 22 metres. And where these objects were found is very much to the southeast of the flight path and is actually close to the original position of the flight path. The mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, says an explosion that destroyed two five-storey buildings in the city was caused by a gas leak. Three